From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Tamoy Bhattacharya will join us to talk about semantic structures in human languages. So stay tuned for all of this here on the Grok Science Show. Welcome back to the program. Well, for many of us, picking up a second or third language becomes much difficult after our formative years. But researchers have found out that there are semantic similarities in languages around the world. Well, joining us right now is our very special guest, uh, Dr. Tamoy Bhattacharya from the Santa Fe Institute, who has been doing some novel research in semantic mapping across the world. Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm so happy to be here. So in this paper, you've identified semantic similarities. What exactly does that mean? Is that like the sentence structure, for example, the subject verb object or subject object verb format or in the use of uh, phonemes? Uh, No, we actually did not study sounds. That was the topic of a research about one year back. Uh, Right now, we were actually trying to just understand meaning. And by meaning, uh, it's not the grammatical meaning like subject, object, verb. We meant meaning in the sense of cloud, meaning the white fluffy stuff that flies across the sky. I mean, it's the lexical is a way we use words to identify meanings. And what we were interested in is how similar are different meanings so that uh, you don't need to use two different words to express two different meanings. So for example, in English, when you say day, you might mean just the lighted part of the uh, time, this 12 hour period from morning till evening. But sometimes you mean the 24 hour period so that you can talk of this day or the day after and things like that. So there are two different meanings and both of them are expressed by the same word. And we were interested in figuring out what kind of meanings could be expressed by the same word and when we needed different words. So that's the relationship between meanings that we wanted to study in very different languages across the world. Basically, you're saying words or the definition of words are fluid. And because of that, you have relationships between you know, concepts and words that you, you found similarities in, in different languages. Yes, what we said was that if you uh, kind of think about how often the same word can stand for two different meanings. So, for example, can you find a language where the uh, same word stands for sun and moon, for example? And if you can, then you would argue that sun and moon, these two concepts have something similar about them so that the same word can stand for both of them. On the other hand, if there is no language in which, let's say, water and sand are the same word, 
In that case, you say water and sand must be pretty far apart so that no language uses the same word for both these concepts. So what we wanted to do was figure out this kind of multiple meanings from the same word, which is called polysemy technically. So we wanted to find how different languages are polysemous. And what we found was that the concepts which were close in one group of languages were almost always the same as the concepts that were closed in a different group of languages. So languages somehow structure the way we think about the world in the same way. It uses the same same set of concepts, kind of need different words or don't need different words. So the distance between concepts seems to be pretty language independent. So what does this say about human cognition? Are, are these um, observations endemic to how our brain works or is it culturally or geographically conditioned? So what we found was that they definitely was not geographically conditioned to the extent that we could uh, figure it out. So if we took, for example, uh, three different words, I mean, let's say uh, sea and uh, sun and salt. So it's interesting that you produce salt by applying the sun to the sea. You just dry the sea, sea water and then you uh, get salt. Now you can ask, supposing you didn't have a word for salt, would you use the word for sun for it or would you use the word for sea for it? So would you add sea to your food or would you add sun to your food? And you can ask this question differently in different regions. So for example, you can take the coastal people for whom the sea is always around. It's the sun which might be a scarce resource. But those people think of sea and salt being similar and sun being a dissimilar thing. So languages, if they do use the same word for both, actually use the same word for sea and salt, not for salt and sun. Now you go far away from this group of languages to people who have never seen the sea and only get salt by training. Even those people seem to find that the sea and salt are the similar things and sun is a dissimilar thing. So somehow or the other, it is not conditioned by their immediate geographical surrounding. We also tried to see if it is conditioned by known cultural variables that we could track and know it the similarities at this level it, at this big level these similarities are not conditioned by culture either so that leaves two different possibilities one possibility is that there was an early language well which was spoken who knows uh, 30 40000 years back and all the languages we studied are descendants of that and they have preserved these uh, similarity structures in them but the more likely hypothesis is as you just pointed out that our brains actually picture the world in the same way. When we look at the world, there is a particular structure that we find in the world, and that structure is represented in our language. So it probably tells us more about our brains than about culture or geography or anything like that. Before you began this research, what what was the prevailing hypothesis, how brain recognizes these structures. Uh, was there something surprising from your findings? The reason we were doing all of this is primarily to put all of this on a quantitative basis. People had asked all of these questions and people realized that sometimes, of course, at a very fine level, if you really think about it, there must be cultures which make a distinction between words like sleet and uh, snow, whereas in other cultures, they won't make such distinctions. So obviously at a fine level, culture is affected by all their surroundings and things like that. But when it came to the global patterns, like the distances we were talking about, things like sun and moon, or let's say hill and river and things like that, there was really no quantitative way of asking this question before we started doing our study. So in some sense, the main part of what we did was 
not so much in the results, even though the results were unexpected to a lot of linguists, it is more that we found a way of answering these questions in a precise and uh, quantifiable fashion. So that's the main thrust of our research. In terms of the actual analysis, how did you map out these structures? Did you take, you know, for example, a, a word and translate it in different languages and look for what perhaps their counterparts were in the respective languages? Exactly. I mean, it's almost like that game of telephone. What you do is you try to take a, a word, let's say you started a word for, let's say, sun, and then you go to some language, let's say uh, we take the language called Koshal Chimishan, which is one of the, the Koshal Chimishan is the language which is spoken in the Americas. And what we do is we translate it into uh, this particular language. Or we could take the language Lakota, which is another uh, language spoken in the Americas, and translate it into all, you find all the words which mean sun in these languages. Then what you do is you translate them back into English. And once you translate it back into English, you see what kind of words you get. And what happens is if you start from sun, in both of these languages, you get both, you get sun and you also get moon and you get month. And um, in some languages, you also get heat. In other languages, you don't. So what you do is you get all of this data, then build a network out of it. And from this network, you try to find a really the set of relationships which are true for this particular language. Then once you have done one language, you then take about a large number of languages from across the world, which are not very closely related to each other because you don't want to get biased. And then you add all of these networks up to find this network, which is much bigger than the network of any language. And what you test to see is if every language is like a fair sampling of this big network. And the answer is yes. It looks like there is a universal network from which all languages are sampling polysemies. So every language decides the amount of words it wants to expend uh, on expressing these concepts, the amount of ambiguity it can live with. And given that amount of ambiguity, it just chooses from this global network concepts to put together into the word, back together into the same word. And that's how we did this. So the distance between concepts that we get is essentially how long it will take you to go from one concept to the other if you just moved along this network that we made. Uh, and does this also apply to, um, you know, recently coined words? For example, now that we live in a uh, technology-driven society, there, there are many words like electricity or computer or internet. Does these similar uh, relationships hold? So we didn't actually do that study because what we this was the first study we wanted to start somewhere. And as I told you, the main focus of our work was to develop the methodology and to find a way of where we can measure this distance. Before this, there was no way of measuring a distance. I couldn't go and ask a linguist how far is, let's say, sun from salt and salt from sea. I mean, these questions, you wouldn't get a number as an answer because... Uh, there was no way of asking these questions. So we to develop the methods, we studied only those words which are natural words, which kind of people see around them, things like hills and mountains and fire, sun, moon, rain, cloud, sky, river, lake. I mean, that's the kind of words that we studied in this particular thing. But the same methods can be applied. And uh, people have already started applying these techniques to a much broader array of concepts. So we we started at one corner and it's a very, it needs a lot of human time because most of the 
dictionaries for the languages which are so spread out across the world that you are reasonably sure that they didn't influence each other. So if you try to take all these languages, they are so far apart from each other that most of them don't have digital dictionaries. You actually need people to sit down with paper dictionaries and translate one word at a time, make sure they understand the translation, and it generally takes a long time. So we didn't actually study anything outside the domain of natural objects. So I understand the Santa Fe Institute does a lot of research in complex analysis, and language is one of the uh, fields the Institute works on. What other aspects of language research have you been involved in? So the my big idea of doing language research in the first place is because this the way we think about complex systems in the Santa Fe Institute, it basically says that all of these historical sciences or the social sciences, we want to study them quantitatively. We want to actually build up to the point where we can actually ask questions about real history and answer them in quantitative fashion. In the, for example, if I asked you uh, whether or not, let's say, the German language and the English language had a common ancestor, the answer should be we are 99.9% or something like that sure that there was a common ancestor and that common ancestor was spoken, let's say, uh, however many years back with some error bars on our estimation. So we want to get to that point. So for that, what I needed to know is how language changes over time. And of course, language changes because its grammar changes, language changes because the words that we use change, the pronunciation of the words changes, and most importantly, the meaning of the words change. So when I started doing this work, the first thing I tried to do was understand how the sounds change, and a lot is known about that in uh, historical uh, linguistics, but what I wanted to do is to put that in a proper Bayesian probabilistic framework, and uh, that work is more or less uh, uh, done. We now know exactly how a Bayesian framework can be put so that we can have given two words in two different languages. Uh, we can ask the question of what's the likelihood that they had these two words had a common origin. The word sounds had a common origin. But since the words actually change in meanings as well as sound, I mean, the word wicked in English originally simply meant uh, something to do with magic. I mean, the word wicca, for example, still exists in English. Basically, it comes from something to do with magic, and then it meant something which was bad. It was associated with witches. And today, when somebody says the car is wicked cool, they don't actually mean it as bad as all, at all. Come up with a theory of how meanings change. I needed to quantify uh, how far two meanings were from each other. And this is the research which I was talking about, where for the first time we came up with a quantification of distance of our meanings. So my work has been this kind of model building the theory of trying to understand historical change in languages. The other part, people at the Santa Fe Institute, they have been very involved in collecting the data from uh, languages across the world and asking themselves whether or not it is plausible to think that all languages of the world have a common origin, or at least which languages of the world have a common origin. Now, most linguists uh, do believe that uh, one can easily, following a certain standard methodology, go back something like 10,000 years, let's say, in the European region, we can connect up the languages we split apart in the last 10,000 years. But the idea is that maybe if we can put all of this in a proper mathematical framework, we can actually go back much further than that and yet maintain the rigor of mathematics as we do that. And uh, that's the hope and that's what I'm after. I suppose you would consider Michael Jackson to be a trailblazer. Uh, he's made bad into good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Are there any uh, natural analogs to the type of evolution that you've described? I mean, would, would a, say, genetic algorithm be similar in the way that the words evolve? So I actually uh, have started off from uh, physics where we think of everything in this idea of the, the big picture first and then fill in the details later. So I, of course, about things in such a way that we forget the small inconsistencies in the beginning with the hope that someday we'll be able to explain it. And that's the and I was actually working in physics and then I worked for a while and I still do. I work in HIV biology and trying to find the origin of HIV and uh, vaccines against HIV, all doing the same kind of research that I'm doing here. Important thing to understand is that each of these systems is superficially similar and there is an underlying mathematical similarity in that all of these things are probabilistic processes in which species or languages they branch off from each other and for a while they evolve independently from each other. But the actual detailed mathematics is almost never going to be the same. Languages are not species and uh, words are not genes. So we don't expect the exact same mathematics to work in detail, even though if you make enough approximations, they will look similar. So yes, there is a similarity, but no, they are not the same process. You had a very diverse career. I'm just curious, how did you, how did your interest from physics transition to linguistics? It uh, from from physics, what happened was that uh, I was always interested in this interplay of uh, randomness and determinism, something which one has to understand in quantum mechanics all the time. And I was also quite familiar with supercomputers and computing and things like that. So at the Los Alamos uh, National Laboratory, where I work part time, we have a very very strong group of theoretical biologists, HIV biologists, and Betty Korber, for example, is one of the leading HIV theoreticians in the world. And she was asking herself the question of when HIV originated and was having difficulty solving that problem on her workstation. So one day she and I were talking and essentially she taught me enough HIV biology so that I understood how to do this and program all of this on a supercomputer and working with her from then on slowly I started working in what is called phylogenetics or history in biology. Now once I started doing that I started asking myself that ultimately there is obviously a similarity between the evolutionary processes in biology and in culture and history and I wanted to understand whether or not this is just an analogy or there is something deeper in it. So I went to the Santa Fe Institute and started talking to uh, some linguists uh, who could teach me linguistics. The important thing to do, remember when doing cross-disciplinary work is that you always need a guide. You need somebody who understands the field very, very well so that when you start, when I start using my ideas of these big picture dynamics, change and all of that and trying to put everything together, I don't get waylaid by the mistakes which a beginner would make. So the answer to your question would be with good teachers. That's how I move from field to field. You know, one of the big questions that still excite you uh, besides physics and linguistics? I am actually interested in quantifying all of uh, cultural dynamics. I want to understand how culture changes over time. I want to understand how human behavior can be understood and the more importantly how changes in human behavior can be understood. The, the, the culture, we create a culture we, and this culture has an existence which transcends the lifespan of any one individual. 
and I want to understand what is the dynamics of this. I mean, how does it change over time? It's been a very inspiring talk. I guess we're running a little bit of time here. Are, are there any thoughts you'd like to share about uh, your work or your uh, research at Santa Fe Institute? Santa Fe Institute is a wonderful place to work. It takes a view of uh, the world where one wants to solve the complex problems uh, using mathematical modeling. And and I would encourage more people to think in that way. Uh, so finally, I, I guess maybe uh, relate to some of my work. Uh, I'm interested in climate change. Are you optimistic about solving some of the you know global problems that the world is facing? Santa Fe Institute is very involved in that kind of research. And yes, uh, we will probably be able to understand uh, more about the interdependence of the different uh, human and environmental factors. And as we understand it more, we will probably get practical guidance in how to actually take measures where the climate will slowly be more conducive to our life than if we did nothing to it at all. Thank you, uh, Dr. Pateria. Thank you so much again uh, for joining us. Thank you so much, and I'm so happy to talk to you. And we were just talking to Dr. Tamway Bhattacharya from the Santa Fe Institute. We were talking about the common semantic structures found in human languages. Uh, his research was recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.groks.net, on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at science at groks.net. For Garak Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. Thank you.